And now remain standing for our lesson of the day. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I will read verses 7 through 10. The words of Solomon. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which she has given you under the sun all your days of vanity. For that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we thank You that You are a joyful and a happy God. And Father, we thank You that You command us to be joyful and indeed You share Your joy with us. May we know Your joy today, even in the midst of of the chaos and messiness of life. May we know Your joy and celebrate all Your good gifts. Would You help us to do this as Your Word goes forth today? by Your grace and for Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have probably heard the story of the Christmas truce during World War I. It was 1914 uh, on the Western Front. Uh, The fierce fighting between the Uh, allied soldiers from Britain and France and the German soldiers on the other side uh, actually ceased. Uh, This was uh, a time when the soldiers crossed the trenches to meet and to exchange greetings and exchange gifts. Uh, Pope Benedict XV had actually called for the Christmas truce on December 7th. And while the countries at war with one another refused to enter into any kind of official ceasefire as Christmas Eve approached, the sounds of the rifles firing and of shells exploded faded away as Christmas got close. And the sound of Christmas carols in multiple languages began to arise. Indeed, on dawn of Christmas Day, 1914, some German soldiers walked out into no man's land. They came out of their trenches. They approached the Allied soldiers. They called out, Merry Christmas, in English. And at first the Allied soldiers thought it was some kind of trick. But then seeing that the Germans were unarmed, they climbed out of their trenches as well and came to meet the German soldiers. And they shook hands and they gave each other cigarettes because that's about all they had to to share with each other as gifts. And they ate plum pudding together. And they sang together. They even played a game of soccer together. Now we might think, how could they do that? Here they're in the middle of fighting a war, a world war, how could they celebrate on the battlefield? How could they rejoice and, and, and give gifts and play games and sing in a time of war? How could they party in this way when surrounded by so much death? Well, in a way, that's just the kind of thing King Solomon is telling us to do. In the midst of the swirl and the chaos and the battles of life, despite the certainty of coming death, He calls on us to celebrate, to rejoice, to enjoy God's gifts, to make the most of our opportunities, for there is nothing better than this, to thankfully enjoy what God gives. Oh yes, life is often messy. Uh, Life often doesn't go according to plan. Things often don't play out the way we had hoped and expected. Solomon says, rejoice anyway. See, your calling as a member of the people of God, your calling as a Christian is to live a life of joy. That's what Solomon commands here in these verses in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 7-10. through 10. He talks about eating dinner with joy, drinking your wine with a merry heart, working hard at your job with joy, looking the best that you can look for the sake of those around you being festive in all of life because you know God has already accepted you. You are a beloved son or daughter of the King and God is pleased with you. 
And so you can rejoice, Solomon is saying, just as if everything was right with the world because you know someday it will be. Solomon is saying, you can taste heaven on earth now because you know someday heaven and earth will be one. And not even the certainty of death can alter this joy or steal this joy away because you know that a resurrection reversal of death is just as certain as death itself. That's really a summary of what Solomon says here. But I want to break this down and go into more detail here. There are two things. Although I want to organize the way we look at this passage, there are two things I want to work out in more detail. First, I want us to look at the source of our joy in this passage. And then second, I want us to look at the shape of our joy as it is described in this passage. First, what's the source of this joy? God commands joy here through King Solomon. What is the source of this joy? Well, in a word, it's God Himself. It's God's own joy. God is happy. God is a happy God. And when God commands us to be happy, He is inviting us into His own happiness. Again and again, Scripture affirms that God is a God full of joy, full of of laughter and delight. In 1 Timothy 6.15, Paul calls God the blessed and only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. But that word blessed, whenever you read that word blessed in the Bible, can actually be translated as happy just as well, if not better. And so really what Paul is saying is God is the happy and sovereign Lord. God is a happy God. Now so often in our depictions of God, Uh, we don't see God as a happy God. Maybe we see God as a frustrated God or an angry God. Or maybe we even see God as a stingy God. But there's really nothing more preposterous than the idea of God as a kind of gloomy tyrant. No, again and again we see in Scripture, God is a joyous giver. Oh yes, Satan would very much like for us to think of God as miserly and stingy with his gift. But in reality, we see God is overflowingly generous. God is like a fountain. He is happy in Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit delight in one another. They've been delighting in one another within the life of God from all eternity. That's what the Trinity is all about. This mutual love and joy that the Father, Son, and Spirit have in and for one another. And the good news, the good news of the Gospel, the good news that God shows us again and again in His Word, is God invites us to become participants in His own happiness. To enter into this Trinitarian circle of love and joy and delight. Indeed, because we are His children, God wants us to be happy. He wants us to know that He delights in us so that we will delight in Him. There's an old saying that uh, maybe... Uh, you, you know, your parents have heard this before. As a parent, you can only be as happy you know, once you have kids. You can only be as happy as a parent as your least happy child. Okay. Well, uh, if you think about God in those terms, uh, God has in some mysterious way tied up His own happiness with the happiness of His people. And so God is determined to make us happy, to share His happiness with us. He wants us to know that He delights in us. And indeed, this is what Solomon is getting at, I think, in verse 7. This is the real way Solomon identifies the source of our happiness in this passage. Verse 7, he says, God has already approved of what you do. God has already approved of you and of your works. God approves of and delights in you and in what you do. See, God's happiness is not just in Himself now. Ever since God created the world... God is determined to find happiness and pleasure in His creation as well. And Scripture shows us again and again, God is happy with us. Now, that's not the only emotion God has towards us. Sure, there are times when God gets angry with us. We see that in Scripture too. But God is ultimately determined to be joyful in us and to share His joy with us. You could put it this way. God doesn't just love us. God likes us. God rejoices in us. God accepts us and He accepts our works. That means He accepts us into His circle of love and joy. Now obviously this means that God is gracious. God is gracious. All of us are sinners. And all of our works, even our best works, are marred with sin. 
And so for God to accept us, our sin must be forgiven. We know how. Solomon could only look ahead through the, the shadows and, and types and symbols of the sacrifices to see how God would do this. We know. We know God only accepts us and accepts our works through the work of Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit. See, it's really the Gospel. You're not accepted because of your works. Rather, your works are accepted because of the grace shown to you in Christ. But I dare say, a lot of Christians don't know this truth, or at least don't know it the way that they should, or they don't know the whole truth, or they don't live in this truth the way that they should. And I think you see that. All you have to do is ask a, a fellow Christian, have you ever pleased God? Has God ever taken delight in, in you? Has God ever taken delight in your works? And what so many Christians will tell you is, oh, no, of course not. I could never please God. I'm way too sinful for that. You see, the issue here is not our sin. Yes, we are sinners. But the issue is not our sin. The issue is God's grace. And what actually sounds like humility, oh, I'm such a sinner, God can never delight in me, is actually a minimizing of the grace God really shows to us in the Gospel. Now, I don't want you to just take my word for this. I'm going to call on an expert, expert testimony, witness. Listen to John Calvin on this very truth that Solomon speaks of here, God accepting our works. Calvin spoke of God's fatherly delight in our works. He said, after He has received us into His favor, He receives our works also by a gracious acceptance. Calvin said, we, meaning we reformers, we cheer and comfort the hearts of believers. So we bring joy to the hearts of believers by our teaching when we tell them they please God in their works and are without doubt acceptable to Him. Calvin wrote, the promises of the Gospel not only make us acceptable to God, but also render our works pleasing to Him. He said the lives of believers are pleasing to God. Calvin says this again and again, but it's something you really don't hear all that much today. And I think we're missing out because of it. It is so important for us to know this. God is for you. God loves you. God accepts you. God accepts your works. The same way a parent can take delight in his child's stick figure drawing, which no, it's not a Rembrandt. It's, it's not going to be hung up in a museum somewhere. But it brings you delight every time you see it hanging there on the refrigerator. That's how God views even our baby steps towards obedience. With the joy and delight of a doting father. Zephaniah 3, God says, uh, it tells us God rejoices over His people with Saul. Picture God singing over you, singing songs of joy over you. You ought to. That's how the Bible depicts God, as a singer singing songs, rejoicing over us, His people. We sing songs. Why do we sing songs to God? We sing songs to God because we love Him. We want to praise Him. We want to please Him. Well, guess what? God sings songs over you because He loves you. And because He wants you to know that He loves you. He wants to assure you. He wants to communicate to you His delight in you. His acceptance of you. And here's maybe another way to get at this. If you lack happiness, if, if you're running a joy deficit, you're not as joyful or happy as you ought to be, maybe this is where you should start. Ask yourself this question. Do you truly believe God accepts you and accepts your works through Christ and by faith. See, I think there is nothing calculated to make you happier than this. Nothing that can make you so secure as this. Knowing that God loves you in this way. Knowing that God accepts you in this way. You know, we tend to do, we tend to blame our unhappiness or lacking happiness. We tend to blame it on our circumstances. And we think, if only, and then you can fill in the blank, if this were changed in my life, then I would be happy. But you know what? One testimony after another shows that this just isn't true. One study after another shows this just isn't true. Outward circumstances actually have very little bearing on happiness. In fact, I would say it's the people whose outward circumstances are the best 
the people who are the wealthiest and most successful who know this better than anyone else. Because they're the ones who have climbed to the top only to find that fame and fortune are really tasteless. And again, just give you one expert witness, one testimony to this. Jim Carrey. Okay, you know that name? The famous actor? Okay, there's a guy, right, who's got everything. He's got fame, fortune. Okay, what more could you want? Okay? But Jim Carrey said this. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and get everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. He says, hey, I wish you could get everything you want. You know, all the fame, all the fortune, all the wealth, the popularity, the success. I wish you could have it all so you would see, no, that's not going to make you there is actually very little correlation between circumstances and satisfaction. Between your life circumstances and your life satisfaction. Which means you better find a joy that doesn't depend on circumstances or you're not going to find joy at all. But that's what Solomon is showing us here. We have a joy that doesn't depend on wealth or popularity or even comfort. We have a solid basis for joy in God Himself in the love and grace that He shows to us as He accepts us. But of course, what this means is that a joyless Christian should really be a contradiction in terms. There should be no such thing as a joyless Christian. And yet, see this as much as I do, when we look around at the church today, we so often fail to show a real, deep, and abiding joy. Listen to the words of Alexander Schmemann. Schmemann said the early church was victorious over the world through joy. The early Christians radiated joy. This is what made the Gospel so attractive. The early church was victorious over the world through joy and the church will lose the world when she loses her joy. And then he says, of all the accusations brought against Christians, the most terrible one was the one uttered by Nietzsche when he said, Christians had no joy. This is the worst thing that can be said about the church, that we lack joy. Now contrast that with what C.S. Lewis said. Lewis wrote, we were not meant to be perpetually solemn. We must play. He said, it is your duty to be as happy as you can be. That is your Christian duty to show this happiness, this joy. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, it is pleasing to God when you rejoice or laugh from the bottom of your heart. He said, you will have as much laughter as you have faith. See, what Luther captured is that joy is really the product of our faith, not circumstances. Joy comes from what we know about God and God accepting us and God delighting in us. When we know God is happy with us, then we can be happy as well. Joy is not optional. Joy is mandatory for the Christian. You must know that God accepts you. He accepts you into His circle of joy and love. He accepts your works. He's pleased with you. He delights in you. That is the source of our joy. It's God's own joy, which by grace He shares with us. We can rejoice because God rejoices in us. We can rejoice because God accepts us. He accepts our works. But what about the shape? of our joy? What shape does our joy take? What does it look like to be joyful in this way? Well, here Solomon in a series of commands outlines the good life, you could say. This is the good life according to King Solomon, the good life according to biblical wisdom. This is what a godly culture looks like. Now, before I get into the actual imperatives, the things that Solomon outlines here, I need to tell you there, there, there are two things that you need to know about this whole set of commands here. Uh, that describe the shape of our joy. Two things you need to know. First, this little section here in Ecclesiastes 9 is one of several summarizing applications in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's this constant refrain in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon gravitates back to this theme. So, for example, in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, you have one of these summarizing applications. He says, there's nothing better for a man than to eat drink and find joy in his work, this also is from the hand of God. Later in chapter 3, he gives another summary. He says, there's nothing better for man than to be joyful and do good as long as he lives and eat and drink and to take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift 
to man. And then in chapter 5, you have another, another one of these summarizing statements. It is good and fitting to eat and drink and find joy and to find enjoyment and toil under the sun in the few days of his life that God gives to man, for this is his love. Again and again, Solomon comes to this, this theme. We are commanded to love life. We are commanded to enjoy God's gifts, to find joy in all these different facets of life, and to make the most of our days under the sun. That's one of the things you need to know. This, this is part of a recurring theme. These little summary commands and applications keep popping up in the book of Ecclesiastes. The other thing you need to know is that these commands are given against the backdrop of death. They're given against the backdrop of the certainty and inescapability of death. Let's face it, all of your problems in life, I mean, however you want to describe them, whether they're financial problems or health problems or marital problems or work problems, whatever they are, whatever kind of things you fear in life, whatever it is you're afraid of, they are all manifestations of the curse of death. Death is, in the end, the only problem we really face. Uh, it's been called the only problem philosophy must deal with. I mean, death is really what it all comes down to. If you can deal with death, you can deal with anything. But again and again, Solomon tells us about death, how it's inescapable, it is certain. In fact, you see that in this very chapter. I didn't read it, but in the first six verses, right before he gets to this, these commands that we've read this morning, verses 7 through 10, in the first six verses, he talks about death and describes how death comes upon all. Both the wise and the foolish die. The righteous and the wicked both die. The same event, death, happens to all. Indeed, in, in verse 10, even in what we did read, he, he mentions this. All die and all go to what he calls Sheol, the realm of the dead. Now, the certainty of death textures this whole passage. It, it hangs over this whole passage. And what it does is it gives to these commands a certain sense of urgency. You could say this is the biblical version of carpe diem. Seize the day. Because death is coming, grab all the joy you can now. Because death is coming, squeeze as much out of life as you can. Now Solomon's perspective here does not stretch out to the resurrection. It's not that the resurrection is not taught in the Old Testament. Not that Solomon wouldn't have believed it. I think he did. But that's not the perspective. That's not the vantage point here. He's not looking at death in light of the resurrection. He's looking at life in light of death. That's really his focus here. And there's wisdom in doing this. And so this is his point. You know, as he's looking at life in the light of death, he's saying the time to do these things is now. You will live for God now or never. You will find this joy now or never. You know, it's been said, treat each day as if it might be your last, because one day you'll be right. And I think Solomon would have agreed with that. You only get one life. And so you're to live as fully and faithfully and as beautifully and joyfully as you can. It is precisely this vaporous and fleeting nature of life is precisely because life is so vaporous and fleeting that we are urgently commanded to enjoy what we can. Solomon is reminding us, life is short. And so don't waste time. Don't waste your days. Don't, don't waste time complaining. Meanwhile, letting opportunities for joy slip through your fingers. Don't waste time complaining about your circumstances or things you can't control or can't change. Instead, get to work doing what you can do. Now let's look at each one of these commands that he gives. And uh, together, I think they show us the shape of true joy. And when we do this, I think what you're going to see as we take all these commands and look at them, I think what you're going to see is you are probably not having enough fun. You're probably not having enough fun. You probably don't have as much fun as you should. You probably don't have as much joy as you should have. You probably don't have as much happiness as you ought to have. Look at what he says here. <clears throat> Verse 7, he says, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. You've got bread and wine. You've got joy and merriment. 
You know, there's that pagan saying that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Well, here Solomon is saying, eat and drink for today we live. Let's eat and drink while we can. Let's enjoy bread and wine while we can. Shared meals, shared table fellowship is truly one of the great joys of life. I don't really have to tell you that. You know that already. This is Thanksgiving week. And we're going to be feasting this Thursday. That time of feasting, that time of joy, appreciate it for what it is. Feast to the glory of God. You know, even John Calvin, who definitely had some stoic tendencies, uh, captured this because it's such a pervasive biblical theme. Listen to what Calvin said. So since God created food, we find that He meant not only to provide for necessity, but also for delight and good cheer. In other words, food doesn't just nourish us, it makes us happy. We don't just eat to live, we eat for joy. We eat for the enjoyment of doing so. Calvin says God shows Himself a Father sufficiently bountiful. So He shows Himself to be a, a bountiful Father in providing bread. And His liberality appears still more conspicuous in giving us delicacy. Again, He gives us bread, the staple of life, but He, he gives us other kind of things too. I saw some kids eating donuts back there this morning. Okay, what's a donut? It's glorified bread. Alright? Enjoy. Enjoy those kinds of gifts to the glory of God. Now, I've quoted John Calvin. Let me quote somebody else here. Ben Franklin. Okay, ben Franklin was not exactly uh, a, uh, a, an Orthodox Christian believer, not somebody we trust theologically, but he was a man with a lot of common sense, and he spent a lot of time around uh, God's people. He used to listen to uh, George Whitfield preach quite a bit. One of Franklin's most famous sayings is this. He said, Beer is proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. Beer is proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. And I dare say that Ben Franklin was right in line with the vision of life given to us in Ecclesiastes on that point. Beer is proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. Bread is proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. Wine is proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. Thanksgiving turkey is proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. Fried chicken and ice cream and peanut butter and bacon are all proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. Why would God create these things and give these things to us if not for our joy and our happiness? Your taste buds are proof God loves you and wants you to be happy. Indeed, I find it so interesting. Matt, Matt Carpenter did his... Uh, his Sunday school lesson this morning was really good on the theme of food in the book of Genesis. It's really, really interesting. One thing I, I find really interesting, not just all the different ways food is used in Genesis and the rest of the Bible, but one of the things I find most interesting is those places in Scripture where God compares Himself to food. As, as if God Himself becomes food to us or communicates Himself to us through food. God or His attributes are compared to food God uses food to teach us how good He is. Psalm 34, the psalmist says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. What does the Lord taste like? He tastes like goodness. Proverbs 24 gets, gets more explicit, unpacks this a little bit more. Proverbs 24, My son, eat honey for it is good, and the honeycomb sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. But why did God make honey so sweet? Why did God give us sweet things like honey so we would know what His wisdom is like? So that your soul's taste buds could learn from your tongue's taste buds. Now the thing is, if you never taste honey, if you never taste anything sweet, and, and there's some people who would even say, oh, well, that's godly or that's... that's, that's that, that, that's more obedient to deny yourself these kinds of pleasures. No, you, you can't do what Solomon says to do in Proverbs 24 unless you taste honey. You have to taste honey to know what the wisdom of God is like. To know how sweet and pleasant it is. See, honey teaches you something about God. As do all good things. Honey teaches you something about God and His wisdom. And again, remember, when we do things like taste honey, when we, when we feast on bread and wine and whatever else God 
provides for us. Remember what the rest of verse 7 says. We already talked about it, but Solomon says, and and he's specifically talking here about feasting, God has already approved of your works. God pre-approves of your feasting. That's a great verse, right? We're coming up on Thanksgiving week. God pre-approves of what you're going to do on Thursday. He pre-approves of what you're going to do with that turkey on Thursday. Here it is, guilt-free feasting, guilt-free enjoyment of what God provides. Indeed, I think what Solomon is getting at here is we ought to look for occasions to celebrate. We've got one coming up this week with Thanksgiving. We've got another one right around the corner with the Christmas season, which, remember, is a 12-day festival. You've got things like birthdays. As opportunities to celebrate. G.K. Chesterton said, a birthday party is a way of affirming that it is a good thing to be alive. That's what a birthday party says. It is good to be alive. Indeed it is. Because life is God's gift. And so go eat and drink with joy and gratitude. And understand what's at stake in this. This is the very joy that Satan wants to steal away from us. Feasting really is a form of spiritual warfare. That's especially true at the Lord's table, and you've heard me talk about that before. But it's true at our family tables as well. It's true when we get together with friends around the table also. The Christian life is a life lived in community. And that community is formed largely through shared meals. The food should be good, and the company should be good, and we should thank God for both. You know, in our culture, I think we have a tendency to really glorify alone time. You know, it's just me, myself, and I. Or me and my smartphone, as is more often uh, the case these days. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with times of solitude. We need that. There's, there's a place for that. Some of us maybe need it more than others. There's, there's a place for that. But we need to understand, and we need to keep coming back to this. We were created for community. We were created to live within thick, deep relationships with one another. This brings glory to God. Martin Luther said, flee solitude. He was actually writing to a young man who was uh, struggling with depression or what they would have called melancholy. And, And part of his advice is flee solitude. And what better way to to do that than regularly gathering around the table together? We do that each Lord's Day as a church family. You ought to be doing it regularly with others in your life. Continually gathering with people to feast together. Solomon goes on, verse 8, he says, Let your garments always be white, and let not oil be lacking on your heads. Right? Let your garments always be white. Obviously, I'm the only one who is serious about obeying God. Right? I mean, the rest of you, I look at it, I see all kinds of colors. You're all just disobedient. Right? I don't think that's actually what, uh, what Solomon is getting at. White garments in that culture were hard to come by. They were... Uh, garments used for uh, festive occasions. Gar- garments for special occasions, for, for festivity and for feasting. It's Solomon's way of saying, dress nicely. Make yourself look good. Solomon's saying, put on your best clothes. Dress for a party. Go and celebrate. He says, look good. He also says, smell good. That's really what the oil is for. Okay, you got the white garments. you got the oil. Now, of course, white garments are also priestly. Priests wore white, and so there's that aspect to it. And oil was certainly used in worship for anointing and for ordaining. Indeed, you can find white garments as theological symbols throughout the Bible, Revelation especially. Revelation 3, the Christians in Sardis are promised white garments if they walk worthy. In Revelation 4, the elders are clothed in white. In Revelation 1 and 19, Jesus himself is wearing white. And you can certainly find oil used in different kinds of ways to to symbolize the Holy Spirit and so forth. So certainly there are other layers of meaning here. There are other theological and liturgical layers of meaning to this that we could explore. But do not overlook the simple, straightforward, surface-level meaning of the text. It's great to dive deeper, but sometimes what we need is right there on the surface. What is Solomon saying? God's people are called to be a joyous people and we're called to dress and look the part. We're to be a festive people. Then verse 9, he goes on, he says, Enjoy your wife your wife whom you love all the days of your vaporous life under the sun because that is your portion in life. Against cynicism in marriage, which is so common in our culture today, Solomon affirms the goodness of marriage. 
Again, we could say marriage is proof. God loves us and wants us to be happy. Your spouse, if you're married, your spouse is proof that God loves you and wants you to be happy. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about those who aren't married as well. You can go to passages like 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19, and you see that there is a, a, a gift, a special calling. Uh, it's a singleness, we could call it. And, and that has its, its privileges and its benefits too. So we don't want to overlook that, even though that's not part of what Solomon is getting at here. But Solomon recognizes most people are going to be married. And we need to see marriage as a gift of God. And spouses need to rejoice in one another. And of course, when Solomon commands men to enjoy their wives, he's saying enjoy her friendship, enjoy her companionship. He's also, of course, commanding the enjoyment of sex within marriage, something that Solomon knew quite a bit about. In fact, he wrote a book called The Song of Solomon, which again is a layered text. It's got a richness and a, and a depth to it. But certainly... It is about the joys of marital intimacy. It's about more than that, but certainly not less than that. It is a, uh, a, a whole book, a, a, a song, an extended love poem, basically, you could say, celebrating the joys of marital intimacy. Now, you know, the world tells us all kinds of lies about sex. Lies that ultimately separate sex from marriage, separate sex from children. Uh, the world says sex can be consequenceless. Okay, that's what the world means by safe sex, sex without any consequences. Of that, that just is a way of saying it can be meaningless. And of course, those really are lies. None of those things are true. God has invested sex with incredibly deep meaning. Sex, the, the, the union of a man and a woman, of, of a husband and a wife, is given to us to symbolize the union of Christ and His bride. And again, just as we said with food, God uses food to show us how good He is, to teach us about Himself. God uses sex within marriage to teach us about His faithfulness and His joy in us. Sex is a way for a husband and wife to renew their covenant with one another, to renew their bond with one another. See, the world treats sex as the search for something that is missing. In reality, sex is the celebration of something that's been found. And it is the renewal of that covenant between a man and a woman. But you know, just as the world lies about sex, sometimes the church lies about sex as well. The church is sometimes focused so much on God's no to sex outside of marriage that God's yes to sex inside of marriage, His very strong affirmation, a, a very strong yes to sex inside of marriage, has been obscured. And the result is that uh, some Christians even enter into marriage still, in a way, ashamed or bringing shame with them about their bodies and about their sexuality. Because they've only been taught the negatives. And they haven't been shown this beautiful design that God has for sex within marriage. That God delights in the intimacy of husbands and wives when they come together. Sometimes the church is focused so much on rules, rules designed to prevent fornication, which obviously we do want to prevent, but if we only focus on the rules, if that's all we give to our young people, if we fail to teach them how to really nurture healthy relationships, if we fail to really teach them God's beautiful design for men and women in marriage, then we have missed what it's all about. We, we, we have missed the joy that's there. And so the church, I certainly think the world obviously is telling all kinds of lies in this area, but the church sometimes tells lies as well. Sometimes the church lies about sexual sin for those who have failed and acts as if sexual sins are somehow uh, beyond the pale and can't be forgiven the same way other sin can. No, if you've failed in this area, forgiveness is available to you just as it would be for any other sin. So the church can garble the Bible's message about sex really just as badly as the world can garble God's message about sex. Understand here, the joy that Solomon is calling husbands and wives to is the joy of marital union. The, the, the joy of a marital covenant. Solomon is calling on us to experience the joy of total oneness with our spouses. This total oneness between a husband and wife. Husbands and wives are to share everything with each other. They share their bodies. They share their burdens. They share their work. They share their visions and their hopes and their dreams for life. 
This is what marriage is to look like. It is to be joyous. Husbands and wives are to be enjoying one another. Enjoying life together. Even enjoying the vaporousness of life together. It's till death do us part, but death will come. It will snatch one of you away. Most likely one before the other. And so enjoy your spouse now while there's time. Solomon says, enjoy your wife all the days of your vaporous life which He has given to you under the sun. See, it is precisely because life is fleeting that we're to enjoy it now while we have it. There's not going to be any marrying or giving in marriage. No marriage at all in the place you're going when you die. So enjoy your marriage now. Enjoy your spouse now while you can. And Solomon says, this is our portion in life at which you toil. In all that is done under the sun, I find this interesting. Here, your portion, what he calls your portion or your lot in life, that's the sum total of all the gifts God has given to you and all the responsibilities He has assigned to you. For most people, obviously that's going to include marriage, but note what he says. It takes toil. It takes toil to make marriage work. It takes toil to make marriage enjoyable. Anybody who's been married for an extended period of time, even people who make marriage look easy, you know, just a, a husband and wife who really seem to get along really well with each other all the time. If you go talk to them, if you sit down and talk to them about their marriage, they will tell you it has been work and it has been work from day one. You're to toil and work at your marriage. That's how you find joy in it. But Solomon says this is true wisdom. What does wisdom look like? A happy marriage. A joyous marriage. This is true happiness. Enjoy your spouse and your shared life together. And then finally we come to work in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work in Sheol where you are going. Work while you can. We were designed to work. We learn this about ourselves in the creation account in Genesis. God works, and then He makes man in His image to be a worker as well. Man is to take dominion over the creation, to subdue the creation and transform the creation and work with the raw materials of creation to transform the Garden of Eden into the new Jerusalem. Work is how we reflect God. It's one of the chief ways we reflect the image of God. When we first meet God in the Old Testament, He's a gardener. When we meet God in the New Testament, He's a carpenter. God is always working and we should work too. And understand, work not only serves your own best interests, which it does, it serves your best interests because it gives your life purpose and direction and meaning and significance, but work also serves the best interests of others. Your work is a form of service to others because in your work you're providing goods and services that others need and want. And so your work, it's a blessing to you, but it's also a blessing to others. And so there's nothing better than a job well done. Work is a way of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so enjoy your work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever your brain finds to do, do it with all your might. Now let me wrap this up by suggesting different ways this can apply to different segments of the congregation. See, when you speak to a congregation about these things, you have to recognize you've got people in all different kinds of places in life coming and hearing the same sermon. How does this sermon hit different groups within the congregation? There are some of you who hear a sermon like this and you're like, yes, this is great. I love this kind of stuff. This is so freeing to me. You're excited to hear God accepts you and calls on you to enjoy His gifts. You know life is good because God is good. And you see God giving gifts to you in your life. You know God delights to give good gifts to His children and you see those good gifts in your life. And so you can look out at the world and say, yes, God has made the world our playground. He has filled it with good things for our enjoyment. The way the kids in this church see that playground over there, that's how we see all of life and, and the whole world. And so you're encouraged to hear these things. You, you, you know God knows joy better than we do. And so you know we've got to seek joy on God's terms, and that's what you're seeking to do. That's how you're going to get the most out of life. By living according to God's design, you're thrilled with this. Go and do it. Go do all these things to the glory of God. But for others of you, this can be a little confusing. And you think, you know, this sounds kind of dangerous. You're wondering, how can I enjoy the things of this world that much? 
Isn't there a danger that these things could lead me away from God? Isn't it dangerous to talk about these things? That joy in feasting and joy in, in, in marriage and joy in God's other good gifts that He gives to us, isn't that dangerous? Can't they be abused? And I want to say to you, yes, I, I hear you. I get it. I hear where you're coming from. And yes, the threat of idolatry is real. You may have seen the abuse of God's good gifts in your own life. And that may make it hard for you to hear certain aspects of this kind of message. It is true, we can easily move from enjoying God's good gifts to worshiping them. And when that happens, gifts from God become rivals to God. And instead of enhancing our humanity and enabling us to live out in joy, we become enslaved and our humanity is broken. It is possible to worship the gift instead of the giver. That is why some Christians have become so suspicious of creaturely pleasures because they see the dangers in them and the dangers are there. So then the question becomes, how do you know which pleasures are legitimate and which pleasures are sinful? Well, there's a lot of different ways to approach that question, but let me give you what I think is perhaps the best test of all. And it's a good test to throw out there for this week. A good test to use is what I'll call the Thanksgiving test. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God and by prayer. This is how you know that a pleasure is good and not sinful. Can you thank God for the pleasure? Can you thank God for this thing you are enjoying? If so, if you're grateful, then you're free and clear. Go on. Keep on enjoying it. Enjoy away. But if you can't thank God for it, either because it's sinful in itself or because it's being abused in some way, then stop it. If you can't thank God for it, then stop it. But this is also what you need to understand. You've got God, the giver here, and you've got His gifts here. No, we don't ever want to confuse those. But we don't want to separate them either. We seek the giver through His gifts. We enjoy the gifts for God's sake. You know, parents, if you give your kids some Christmas presents this year and then they shove all the presents away after opening them and they say, I really don't want any of that stuff. Mom and Dad, I just want you. You know, you think, oh, that's so sweet. But then you'll think, wait a second. That doesn't sound right. This is actually how I'm showing my love for you. I want you to enjoy these things. And that's how God is. It's not as if we have to choose between the gifts and the giver. And if we think we can avoid sin by refusing the gifts, we are mistaken. God communicates His love for us through His creation. God made a world brimming with pleasure not to tempt us, but to bless us. We enjoy the gifts for God's sake. And so it's not as if it's a zero-sum game, as if you had to choose between loving God or enjoying His gifts. You can enjoy the gifts as a way of loving God. You can enjoy them with gratitude as a way of bringing glory to God. It's not as if you have to choose. It's not as if enjoying a gift comes at the expense of enjoying God. As if it were a zero-sum game between the gift and the giver. In reality, every gift points us to the giver. C.S. Lewis talked about following the sunbeams back up to the sun. And that's what we do with God's gifts. We follow them back up to their source. And when we are thankful to the giver, when we are enjoying the gift with gratitude, enjoying the gift becomes a way of enjoying the giver himself. See, to be truly and fully human is to thank God and glorify Him by enjoying His created gifts. And you need to understand, Jesus came and died and rose again to make you fully and truly human. Not just to supplement the life you were already living, but to restore and transform your life so you can live a truly human life, so you can live the abundant life enjoying God's gifts in accord with God's design. And finally, I know there are some of you who will hear this as burdensome because you're going through a hard time in life. And the command to enjoy your marriage or to enjoy your work or to celebrate life is hard for you to hear because your situation in life is very difficult. And so you hear a sermon like this and you think, oh great, well this is one more thing I can fail out. One, one more thing to feel guilty about. Now I'm not joyful enough. I'm not having a good enough time. Great. And you're wondering, how can I rejoice when life is so hard? 
This is where Ecclesiastes as a whole can really help us. Ecclesiastes shows us there are seasons in life. And certainly sorrow, Ecclesiastes shows us this, sorrow is an inescapable part of life. And indeed, sorrow is a good teacher. We need to learn sorrow's lessons. Sorrow reminds us we're not in control. We see in Ecclesiastes, God doesn't just give us joyful gifts. He also gives us hard times. He gives us trials. Job acknowledged this. Job said, should we accept good from God and not also adversity? No, we do have to accept the adversity as well. But in Ecclesiastes, that's what you need to see. Sorrow and celebration go hand in hand. Indeed, most of the book, the bulk of this book is taken up talking about the struggles of life under the sun. Most of the book is about how vaporous and fleeting life is. And Solomon says, look, you can't control any of life and you can't understand most of life. That's what most of Ecclesiastes is about. But then you have these sections sprinkled throughout the book which commend joy. And they just seem to pop out of nowhere. And they don't seem to follow the argument Solomon is making logically. And so what's going on? Well, Solomon's point is this. I think this is how we can sum it up. The reasons for our sorrow are real, but they are temporary. The reasons for our sorrow in this world are temporary, but the basis of our joy is eternal. Yes, there is real sorrow in this fleeting, vaporous life. But the sorrows are vaporous and fleeting too. What is not vaporous is the joy. Because the joy is ultimately found in God Himself. Now it is true, if you base your joy on things that are fleeting, your joy will be fleeting too. If you base your joy on something you can lose, you will lose your joy. But when you base your joy in God, it will last. It will last forever and it will grow for all eternity. And so let me close with this because I think this summarizes Solomon's message. Don't let the things you can't control nullify what you can enjoy. Don't let the things you can't understand take away from what you can enjoy. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that You would give us the deep and full joy that comes from the Gospel, the good news of knowing that You accept us and accept our works. You are a happy God and You call us to be Your happy people. But we know sin so often sabotages our happiness. And so we ask You to restore this happiness to us. Restore us to created joys. Restore us to joy in Yourself. A joy that cannot be stolen away, come what may. Father, may we enjoy the creation and and, and the culture as a way of enjoying You. May we give You thanks at all times, living as Your happy and blessed people. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.